Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Amen. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that's hidden in a field, and someone, a trespasser actually, goes onto the land and stumbles upon it, and then all of a sudden uncovers the treasure and goes, oh my gosh, look what I found, and then proceeds to sell everything that he has to raise money so he can buy the field and have it. Or Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a a merchant who was searching for jewels, treasures, pearls even. And finally, when she found this pearl that was flawless, perfect in every way, she sold everything that she had so she could have the one. Jesus walked around Galilee and Israel 2,000 years ago teaching about God's kingdom using little pictures like this. And he would often say, hey, are you getting it? Do you understand? Is it, is it making sense? Are you tracking with me that the kingdom of God is like this treasure that is beyond compare? And whether you stumble upon the kingdom of God and you haven't been looking for it, or whether you are a merchant on a diligent search for a commodity, when you find the kingdom, it's worth giving up everything for it. Now, this is challenging words for us because we live in an age that is packed full of passion, right? I mean, everything from your favorite coffee shop to the grocery store to the nonprofit that you like to your gym and its membership has a cause to change the world. And they promise to deliver and ask you to invest your time and your energy there. So we live in this age where people are trying to capture and captivate all of our energy and passion. But a lot of us, even though the opportunities are everywhere, end up wondering if we'll really be satisfied. Jesus comes along and says that there is a purpose, a cause, greater um, now and that lasts for all eternity than anything else you've found. He started his very ministry by claiming the kingdom of God is here. So that's what we're going to study this month. And actually, last week, um, I sort of did an overview. Um, So if you weren't here, sorry, um, we'll try and post it online whenever we can sort how how to do that. Um, But we will get the audio content out of there if you want to listen. But last week, we we did talk about a definition of what is the kingdom. And I spoke at length about how um, the kingdom really is, apart from all of sort of the things that come into our mind, when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament, the kingdom of God comes down to the rule the authority of God. Across both languages, Hebrew and Greek, that is the sense that you get. And so the definition really is when we, is the rule and authority of Jesus. And when we pray, like the Lord's Prayer, maybe you're familiar with that, let your kingdom come and let your will be done, what we're actually saying, if we hear Jesus correctly, is let the, the rule, let the authority, let the sway of Jesus Come over me in greater measure in all of my mind, in all of my heart, in all of my will, in all of my emotions. Let your rule increase. 
That's what we're asking. Now listen, um, don't let democracy fool you that kingdom is an antiquated concept, all right? Like, democracy is great, but the kingdom still makes sense to us because Jesus knew as he was walking around in Israel 2,000 years ago that there's something within us that desires the kingdom. We long for a real, hoped-for, good life. Something better than we have now, but that is sort of the ideal, and we're fixated upon it, and every day we sort of wake up in search for it. And Jesus said, that is what the kingdom is like. You may not live for his kingdom, but because you are made by God, you live for some kingdom. Some of you know this, but I lived in Nebraska for a number of years, um, and I drove from Minnesota, the great state of Minnesota, down south into Nebraska more times than I can count, and every time that I would cross the border, I would see this, Nebraska, the good life, home of Arbor Day. I don't know if you would say it's home of the good life. Um, there might be some debate there, although it wasn't a bad state to live in. I lived there for a while, but they're, they're, they're tapping into something that we want to live the good life. Their, their ad campaign has gotten a little bit more sophisticated and almost a little snarky. If you just look at their new campaign, I think it says something like, famous for our flat, boring landscape. <laughs> Most people think Nebraska is just like fields of corn. But, but literally, I've, I've walked in places like this in Nebraska. Right, there's these amazing trails and rivers and stuff like that. Or I like this one. This one even sort of gets a little bit. Lucky for you, there's nothing to do here. Come visit Nebraska. It's honestly, it's not for everyone, the news says. It's the good life. We are longing for the good life, and the folks of Nebraska know it, but I'm not sure you're going to go visit there, um, but they have tapped into something that is true about our existence. So, um, if last week was the intro, this week we're starting sort of a threefold piece, this week, next week, and the following, on the missing pieces of the kingdom. The fact that the definition is God's rule and authority and that we desire that completely from the core of our being, that's sort of like the skeleton and I want to fill in the missing pieces, which to me, of course, because I'm a preacher, I'll start with a D. Um, dwelling is this week, dominion is next week, and dynasty is the week after that. And we'll wrap up and start a new series in July. Okay. This sermon is going to have sort of a call and response feel to it. It's not going to be like call and response the whole time, but literally I'm going to do a call and then we're going to have a section called the response. And listen, if you didn't know, like the traditional black church, they're just reading Jesus. Like they know what call and response is. It comes from Jesus. All right, listen to Mark chapter 1. He says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, Here's the call. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Ready for the response? Repent and believe in the gospel. The call? The kingdom of God is here. The response? Repent and believe in the gospel. Somebody say call. 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 All right, let's talk about that. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the gospel call. That, that the whole thing that history has been moving towards and this promise from long ago and the very presence of God himself is here. The kingdom means at the core this kind of rule and authority of God. And, and Jesus comes upon the scene and says, hey, the kingdom's here. Why? 
Because Jesus, the king of the kingdom, a.k.a. God in the flesh, is dwelling among them. The kingdom is here because God is here in the person of Jesus. And if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have been like, okay, I I think I've been waiting for this. But for us, it feels a little bit like, I don't know why he's saying the kingdom is at hand. Well, listen, the entirety of the Bible up to this point has been, and even going forward, a story of presence. It's been a story of God's presence. Let me show it to you. This is the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It reads, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see, God had been incredibly present as he made mankind. The way that Genesis describes it is God with metaphorical hands fashioned dirt into figurines almost and then breathed the breath of life into them. How personal and present is that? And then it talks about God actually walking in the garden with the first man and the first woman. And the immediate effect of their rejection of God's presence and of his rule and authority in their lives was that they hid themselves from him. They wanted distance. But that wouldn't be enough for God God wouldn't let it stop there. He's not that easy, all right? So he, by his great mercy, kicks them out of paradise because why would you want them to live forever in this broken, ruined state where they reject God and they're starting to fight with one another? So he says, you got to get out, but I will one day invite you back into the presence. So the whole story of the Old Testament then is this repeated line of God appearing to people, appearing first to Noah and then to Abraham, who was first Abram, and then God said, you're going to be father to many nations. Happy Father's Day, Abraham. That promise came true, right? And then the nation of Israel grew and grew and grew under the rule of Pharaoh. They were in captivity. And and then finally God was like, hey, listen, Pharaoh thinks he's a big deal. He's not really in charge. Let me show you. So God says, my rule, my authority, my kingship is really what matters. And so he comes, gives all these plagues to the the Egyptians, and then takes God's people, the Israelites, out of captivity and into a promised land where he leads them by his very presence. A pillar of cloud by by day and a fire by night. But that's not enough there. He's like, this is not, I mean, apparently cloud and fire isn't good enough. So he decides to create this ornate scene of tents where where then God would come and visit the people in the innermost of the tent. And then that rolls forward into the temple, this place called the tabernacle. But God's presence there is always mediated. It's it's like God can only only be met and be present in the temple, in the innermost room, in the holy of holies, even between the cherubim. That's where God meets, right? And God's people consistently try and come under his kingship, his rule and his authority, And then routinely rebel. They even ask for another king. A human king rather than God as their king. And routinely, time after time, they reject the deity of God and the kingship of God. To the point where God says, if you think I'm not king, I will show you again. I am not just the king of one nation, but I am the ruler of all nations. And I will take a nation you do not know, and I will bring it 
on and attack you as a means of judgment, and I will take you from the land that I've given you. And finally then, after my judgment is done, I will bring you back into the land and I will really show you my presence. Because one named Emmanuel will come, who is God with us. What Christians believe about Jesus is that Jesus is fully God, fully man. The very presence of God dwelling with us. And Jesus walked this earth perfectly under the rule and authority of his father. And he lived and died sacrificially for all of our rebellion against authority. And he rose in victory, proving his kingship, his rule over death. And then promised to come again to make all things new such that all sin and brokenness would be gone. Let me show you the last scene. We read the first scene. Let's read the last one. This is Revelation 21. I heard with a loud voice from the, front, from the throne saying, Behold, that's our word, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be what? with them as their God. The kingdom of God is all about presence, dwelling, God with us. And here's what I think we can gain from the story as a whole and from a few little snippets that I want to show you of Jesus' teaching. That the kingdom is for those who want to be with the king. The kingdom is for those who want to be with the king. And the kingdom doesn't make any sense for those who don't want to be with God, nor does heaven or eternal life, whatever categories you have, make any sense for those who don't want to be with God in his presence. That's the design of it. The perfect place is the place where the perfect one is. The place that's just and good and right is the place where the one who is righteous and just is. Those who want the kingdom want the king. Look at this. What a great example for today. This is Mark chapter 10. Jesus, though he's a single man, and contrary to what Dan Brown sort of populated, you know, like he never had children. Um, and he proves that you don't have to have children to be complete in life, nor do you have to be married to be complete in life, but you can be fully human and fully satisfied as you are made in the image of God. And so, Jesus, the single man, gets fatherly. And all of the children want to come and see him. Let me read this to you. Because they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, bless them, give them hugs, hold them. And when Jesus saw it, that, they were, that his disciples rebuked them, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laid his hands on them. The kingdom is like a little kid with separation anxiety that can't stand to be away from their parents. That's who the kingdom is fit for, the person who wants to be with the parent. Or in this case, the person who wants to be with Jesus in all his single man fatherly mojo, all right? But he goes on because Jesus knows that some of us have grown old. 
Some of us have grown old, and it's difficult for us to become young again. As G.K. Chesterton said over 100 years ago, let's see. This is the rich young ruler and older man than these kids. Let me read on. The next verse reads, as he was getting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus Looking at him, loved him. Man, I love that. That's good. He looked at him. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's keep going. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, meaning his followers are the children he was just speaking about. Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you to be with you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I'd love to preach that someday. But let's just point to the heart of it. The rich young man didn't want to be with Jesus. The invitation was, come be with me. Come be present with me. Journey with me. Travel with me. Leave all of your treasures behind for the treasure that is the kingdom of God. And he said no and went away sad. The kingdom of God is for those who want to be with the king. It is the very dwelling place of God. All right, that's the call. The kingdom of God is here. Let's do the response. Response? Response. Oh, come on. Response? Response. Hey, we're awake. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance means to change your mind. And not just sort of in like a surface way, but to change your frame of mind, your, the way you feel, your whole orientation. It's to make a change both in principle and in practice. It is reform such that you, you started going one way and you turn the opposite direction. I had a couple phone calls with some of my mentors this week, um, two of them who serve on the advisory board of our church. 
Um, we're still a baby church, so that means we've got great leaders within the church, but no formal officers of the church. We still have an external board that sort of keeps me in check and in line like they did this week. And uh, I'm sort of laying out stuff going on in my life and going on in the ministry of the church, and as soon as I talk with them um, and one of them responds, um, I started to say, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. And the track of my voice, and even the way that I said yes over the course of the conversation, helped me understand repentance in a deeper way. All right, so, so they sort of said, hey, you know what, I think this is probably not so good for you right now. And I'm going, yep, yeah, yeah, blank stares. And then finally the council gets better. Like, the, you know, the advice gets deeper and sort of works its way in. And all of a sudden I'm going, yeah, 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 that's, that's like a direct hit. That's like, that's not up here. That's like down there beneath the surface. Yeah. And then finally, as they, they hear this, good pastors that they are, pastoring the pastor, right, they start to speak words of hope and life, speak words of kingdom and of the King Jesus. And all of a sudden, the shift comes from where I am placing my hope, where my trust, where my refuge is, gets shifted to the point where I'm starting to say, you know what, I hear you, and yeah. Yeah, we do need to go a different direction. Yeah, that's not where we should be. This is where we need to go. I went from yep, yep, to yeah, to yes. Let's go this way. That is what repentance often looks like. Paul David Tripp puts it like this. He says, here's how confession works. You cannot confess what you have not grieved. You can't grieve what you do not see. And you cannot repent of what you have not confessed. So one of the operations of God's grace is to give us eyes to see our sin and hearts that are willing to confess it. Centuries earlier, Martin Luther was pressing the same thing. The great reformer of the 16th century, when he nailed his reforms for the Catholic Church onto the doors of the church, which was like the bulletin board back then, the first one said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. This pattern the one with my mentors or the one with your spouse or your friend or your pastor or someone in your gospel community is to be routine where we see our sin, we receive grace to confess our sin, and we turn and go in a new direction. That is the norm of the Christian life. It is not a one-time event, but the continual process of us living within the kingdom where we repent and continue to believe in the King. Our advisory board has a bunch of different strengths, and one of the guys, like I said, is sort of wicked discerning. I guess you could say godly discerning, but um, he's helped me see the way that repentance can be tricky. It seems straightforward, but we are actually very skilled at doing it sort of falsely and cheaply. Um, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with me. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you see the difference? There's a kind of sadness, there's a kind of sorrow, there's a kind of grief that leads to change, and there's a kind that doesn't. There's a kind that focuses on self rather than focuses on sin and the Savior. I was um, doing a little bit of fatherly discipline to my oldest this week, and uh, we were sitting there, and finally she'd calmed down somewhat, and she's sitting in my lap, and I said, hey, baby, was that a good choice or was that a bad choice? And through tears, she, she sits there and she goes, it was a bad choice. And then, I mark my words, she goes, and I hate making bad choices. I wish all the bad choices would just go away. And I'm sitting there with my baby girl in my lap having this moment where I'm holding my girl as a father, but the father's holding me because I'm seeing in her voice that I do the same doggone thing, bent out of shape over my mistakes, unable to admit that I'm wrong without feeling it. True repentance is not a remorse that just focuses on the sting of the consequence. It's not one that says, like, I can't believe I did that. I'm better than that. It's not even a resolution that says, I'm going to do better the next time. I'm never going to do that again. It is a repentance that says, this is me. I did just think that, feel that, do that. Man, help me, God. Help me, God. You're my only hope. That is the heart of true repentance. And if Martin Luther gave us the gift that we need to do that all the time, the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards pressed the reality that there is this connection between our belief and our behavior that is inseparable. And so whenever there is something surface level going on in your life, it always comes down to a matter of belief that is much deeper. A reality of is your hope, your trust in some other king or some other kingdom than the Lord Jesus and his kingdom? You see, if the kingdom of God is here, present among us, available to us no matter what we're going through, then perhaps our greatest struggle is the fact that we don't live like that. We live constantly as if God's not present, distant, away from us, unavailable, checked out, not here to help. We live constantly as if God is not actually in charge full of authority, the rightful ruler. At multiple points in Jesus' ministry, the crowds rushed upon him and wanted to make him king. They were amazed at his miracles. They were sort of captivated by his teaching. And the odd thing is that all led to the point where they didn't make him king, but they killed him as king. Because they wanted a different kind of kingdom. And they wanted a different kind of king. And I wonder if we are the same in many ways. My pastor, at least the, my pastor when I was a college student, had a way of saying that the kind of king you want reveals the gospel you believe. The kind of king you want, the kind of version of Jesus you envision, reveals the, the, the version of the good news that you placed your hope in. Maybe even a false picture of the good news in the kingdom. I want to read you through one of his amazing charts, because I think it will help land this. 
If the kind of king you want is the king of material blessing, then the functioning gospel or good news you believe is the one of financial security. And what you've ignored and rejected from the scriptures is Jesus' teaching to not lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. Or, Or not lay up treasure for yourself on earth, but in heaven. If the kind of king that you want is the king of your inner life, your personal savior, then the functional gospel is one of individualism. And you have a hard time realizing that the faith is not just personal and private, but is a public statement. You have a hard time reckoning with the reality of being part of the body of Christ and an ambassador for the king wherever you go. If the kind of king and kingdom you want is the king of your personal fulfillment, your happiness, then you will believe the gospel of self-esteem and of your great potential. And you will work tirelessly until you achieve all your goals and all your dreams. And heaven will be for you making it and hell will be for you failing at it. But or you might receive what we learned from Paul the last couple of months. I have learned in all circumstances the secret of being content. If the kind of king and kingdom you want is the king of right living. If you have this tight moral standard... And everyone else seems to be failing it. Perhaps your gospel is the gospel of moralism. The one that bolsters you and lifts you up when you do good. And you might be neglecting the words Jesus said to the Pharisees that you clean the outside of the cup. But the inside is full of cursing and bitterness. Looking down on others. If you believe the king and want the kind of kingdom where everyone gets along... Perhaps you believe the gospel, ooh, did I switch that one? The gospel of tolerance. Accepting everyone and everything from all points of view and all philosophies and all religious vantage points. But Jesus said, whether it's personal peace, relational peace, that I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Even at times dividing families because the kingdom is present and allegiances are split. And if the kind of king and kingdom you want is the king of social justice, then perhaps you believed the gospel of socioeconomic equality. Not realizing the very words of Jesus that the poor will always be with us, that this is a church of both rich and poor, and that Jesus had some of his harshest words for the wealthy. And commanded me as a teacher to instruct those with means not to set their hope on riches. The kind of king you want reveals the gospel you believe. So let's flip this. Which one of those things do you want to be most present? What would you most like to dwell with? Financial security? Your own achievements and accomplishments? Peace in all of your relationships. Perhaps what the, whatever is most present in your thoughts reveals that something has become too important for you. Such that you cannot serve the Lord Jesus with your thoughts. Perhaps something has become too present in your actions, your habits, such that you struggle to serve Jesus with your time. Perhaps something has become so present 
in your feelings. So important that you can't respond to your feelings and then engage in the presence of God. But your feelings consistently take you away from the presence of God. Do we realize that the Lord is here, available to us? The kind of kingdom you want reveals the king that you believe in. And Jesus is here. His kingdom is at hand. He's present even in this morning, speaking to you, helping you to hear the call of the kingdom, the call of the kingdom that God is here, that he's at work in your life, that he's at work in this room, and to hear even the response of the kingdom that demands that you turn from things and trust in the Lord Jesus. So let's do that work of response now, that work of repentance and faith as we come to the communion table and as we respond in song and with prayer.